Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of JIRA, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated and where practical support is available to all Aboriginal women who are currently experiencing family violence or have in the past. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello dear listeners, guys, gals and non-binary pals. You're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny and feminist advice on life, love and whether or not you should break up with your no-good-neck boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer, as we know, is always yes. We're broadcasting to you this week from Lockdown 2.0, the lockening, locked and loaded, rock out with your lockout, Goldilocks and the three lockdowns, the Loch Ness Monster, and why, oh, why is Lockie the next Bachelor? Can anyone please explain that absolute madness to me? Someone who almost certainly will be unable to explain that last one is this week's guest, Big Sister. And I say unable because she is far too highbrow to enjoy the bilge that I like to watch on the telly. She's the author of two exceptional novels, the most recent of which won the 2019 Readings Prize for New Australian Fiction. You can buy it now. It's called The Glad Shout. It's just come out in paperback. And her newest work in progress is going to be the book everyone's talking about in 2022. I've called it. Alice Robinson, welcome to the Big Sister Hotline again. Hi, Clem. Thanks for having me again. I'm so glad that you decided to come back. Of course. We need to talk as more than ever now, don't we? Since we can't do anything else. I was looking at the dates and you were first and last on the hotline uh, back in March at the start of the first lockdown. Yeah, it's unbelievable to me, actually. I can't even believe that I allowed myself to think that it was over somehow. And I feel that I was in total denial when they said that it was going to happen again. I somehow had magical thinking about that. And it took me a couple of weeks to reckon with that again. Well, we're almost three weeks into what's meant to be a six-week lockdown, but I feel a lot more despair this time round than I did last time. Although, to be fair, the last time you were on the show when, when the lockdown was just about to begin, I think we were feeling quite anxious because we didn't have any sort of – there was no framework for what was on the other side of it. And it felt like we could be in lockdown forever. Of course, it again feels like we could be in lockdown forever. But I think once we adapted then, there was some sense of camaraderie. The whole country was in it together. We were all fucking making sourdough and doing craft projects. And 
now it just feels like everyone else is getting on with business as usual and we're just here in our dinky little apartments walking listlessly between the rooms. So true. My um, sister-in-law was saying to me yesterday, um, she's turning 40 this year and she said, I'm just going to pretend it's next year as if this whole year hasn't happened. And I thought, you know that novel, um, My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Atessa Moshfei? It's a bit like that, like the desire, this is how I feel anyway, a kind of sense of being numbed out now. Like I just want to go to sleep and for for it to go. But I've kind of lost my creative mojo. I feel completely listless and... Um, like a rock in a river and the events are just flowing around me now. I feel that exact same way, particularly the dearth of creativity. I mean, in some respects I've been, you know, pushing out a lot of creative content in different ways, but the content I'm supposed to be creating right now, i.e. writing my book, is absolutely not happening. Um, And in part that is practical because you and I are both single moms and we have children to look after. You've got two children, which makes it a little bit trickier than my one child. Um, But also, I mean, my year of rest and relaxation, I've thought about that a lot in, you know, the various iterations of lockdown because it is such a wonderfully evocative book in terms of describing that kind of sense of listlessness and just falling down you know the rabbit hole into nothingness except that we have lives that we need to continue in some way and continue being um enthusiastic for it's funny that you mention your your sister-in-law sister-in-law turning 40 because someone commented on one of my posts this week saying that she's been really struggling with the second iteration of lockdown as well because she turned 40 this year. She's also a single mother. She feels like her her opportunities are kind of mm. passing her by and I, I you know, I want to really acknowledge that there's a lot of people out there who feel that same way that it's not just about getting through this period because how long does it last for? I mean, for a lot of people there's a fundamental shift in the before and the after in terms of opportunities and... Do you mean when it's all over as the after or what? Well, when will it all be over? That's the thing. We don't know. Yeah, I know. I feel like I'm just in survival mode really and I feel like the only way to survive that in a kind of healthy way... I guess it's a bit different for me because I had only just moved into my own place like in the January, end of January, and then the lockdown happened in March. And so my mental health, I realise now in hindsight, in the first lockdown was pretty dire because the whole year for me had been premised on the idea of being external, public, social, seeing my friends, you know, and my two little children were finally for the first time both going to be at school this year. The little one went into prep. And so I had a real vision, a fantasy about what the year would be like and none of that's been able to happen. And so the knock that that provided my psychology was so profound. It was, it sent me reeling. I was, it just, I I was in despair really about how I was going to cope as a result of that. And, but the good thing that happened was that the way that I was managing all my grief about the big life changes that preceded the lockdown was that I was racing into the future in that public sphere, just going out and seeing people and just being busy, so busy that I had remarked to my friend before lockdown, like I often feel like I can't breathe. 
And they said, oh, yeah, I, I feel like that too. Like that is actually a crazy thing to say to someone or, you know, not a good thing to say to someone in passing. Like I'm just going to make some toast. I also feel like I often can't breathe, you know. But that's how mm. normalised that level of busyness was mm. for me and probably for lots of people in the culture. And when the lockdown happened, it forced me to stand still, which I really didn't want to do, and to reckon with how I was feeling and living. And I think... Um, I've certainly been changed as a result of all of that and we probably all have in different ways. Mm. What are the things that you value most about this time? <clears throat> there are things that I probably wouldn't have chosen to value. If I, if someone had said, I've got a lovely gift for you here, um, would you like it? I would have said, no thanks, I'm really happy with how things are. But since I've been forced to accept them, um, I feel... Yeah, the sense of kind of perspective that it's given me on how I was living and feeling before has been really valuable. Being able to communicate and socialise with friends without moving, yeah, moving my body without leaving the house is really lovely, less tiring. What do you think? Uh, I mean, I have appreciated being able to slow down a little bit with my son. Mm. This enforced time with him and enforced makes it sound like a punishment and it's absolutely not. It's really been so beautiful and beneficial to our relationship and to the memories that we're making together and he's a very kind of adaptable child which I feel lucky for because it's just me and well you know his dad has him 50% of the time but it's just me and him when it's me and him together and I feel like I'll have I feel like the fondest memories I'll have of this time will be getting to know who he is as a little person and, and having you know conversations with him and seeing him explore the world in a way that I can witness it rather than him going off for eight hours a day and coming home and me rushing through dinner and I do understand all of that you know that loss that parents and mothers especially Mm -hmm. express of feeling you know like they want we want to re-establish our lives and we want to be productive productive um or you know creative in terms of productive, like producing something meaningful in the world, we want to do all those things and we should be able to, but it is a catch-22. You know, you can't have the best of both worlds. And I'm grateful that this sort of, if I can take one silver lining out of this, then I'm grateful that when I'm old, I won't look back on this time and think, I wish I hadn't raced through it. I wish that I'd just enjoyed him as a, as a small child because I am. Mm, I totally agree with that and it's really changed my relationship with my kids. I I realise in retrospect and I don't know if any of your listeners can relate to this that for every day for eight years since I had the first child I I had been waking up feeling anxious about what we were going to do and how we were going to fill in the time because I felt very beholden to the children's entertainment and really when I drill down that's about a sense of anxiety about what if at some point in the day they come to me with feelings that I don't know what to do with and those feelings will be them whining or being bored. or, mm-hmm. And so I we were pretty overscheduled in retrospect. And all of that went away with the lockdown. And what it's re- made me realise is that what's important is actually just being in relationship with them. It doesn't matter what we do. Actually, they don't care. Mm. And so my anxiety is reduced a lot around that. But I, the other thing, when as you were talking, I was thinking, um, it's a funny time if you're if you've if you're a person like me who's always considered themselves to be a bit weird, or maybe like I was saying to you before, an acquired taste. 
um, which may or may not be true. That's just the kind it's of It's not so- true, <laughs> by the way, listeners. It's just, you know, normal conditioned fucking patriarchal angst speaking. <laughs> yes. And but if you're highly articulate, especially in writing, it's a great era for people like me, you know, whether it's in a dating context or with friends or whatever. Um, I feel it well suited to this moment. <laughs> you would have done very well in Austin's England. <laughs> Letter writing, yeah, all of that kind of thing. It's perfect. Except, you know, as opposed to then we can, you know, have instant conversations with numerous men all at once. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think it would be, of course, they didn't, didn't have any other options, you know, in letter writing times. But can you imagine, have, can you imagine conducting a relationship with a lover who was at war or who was, you know, off travelling or a seafarer or whatever it might be, you know, months and months in between letters? How did anyone cope? They probably wrote really beautiful letters though. And I think the thing of the um, going for walks as well, mm. like that's one of the sanctioned activities we can do and it's that's very 19th century, isn't it? Mm, the promenades. Actually, that's another thing I was going to say that I really appreciate about this time is uh, I have regular walks with people, at least two people, you're one of them and my friend Emily's another. And, you know, on the weekends when I don't have the small human, we go walking and we sip from our flasks and of course now we can't do that because we've got masks but um yeah I've really appreciated that I think that that's something that I will try and continue to do after it all ends you know that sort of just the slowing down the physical reconnection with friends in a way that feels meaningful and you know we walk for three hours and talk about everything and and I think that that's those will be some of my strongest memories what do you miss Oh, so many things. I I really miss just being in public. I would just kill to be able to walk into a restaurant and um, it doesn't even have to be a good restaurant, like I've said before. It just, it, But it has to have an ambient, like a low level, a buzz of ambient noise. That's what I really miss about isolation. You're never in a crowd, so you never hear the low hum of voices, multiple voices at once. Mm. And I really miss that and being able to go to a bar being able to go to a house party, anything where there's just a group of people. I'm mm. yearning for that so much. Yeah, the ambient noise and just the, you know, I was saying last night that just the the sitting in a pub somewhere and just talking absolute nonsense <laughs> for hours and it, not having to have any kind of deep and meaningful conversations but just being in the thick of it all, you know, being where, where, it, where life is happening. Um, you and I have said a number of times that one of the the most unfair things about this, I mean, obviously it's very unfair that a lot of people are dying, but one of the personally difficult things to deal with is, you know, during other times of austerity or wartime or whatever it might be, people could at least gather around a piano together and sing and drink and laugh and kiss and fall in love and all those things. But to have that taken away just seems like an unbearable cruelty. Mm, yeah, we've got all everything we could want and we can't share it with anyone. I find that very sorrowful as well. Mm. We do have a lot of questions to get through mm, this let's week hear though. Them. Because not even a pandemic can stop our need, which is com- and I say this with no hint at all of uh, you know, cynicism or irony. Our need to have 
the big questions of our lives answered and have our hand held through them. So, shall we get on with it? Yes. Please note my disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither I nor Alice are doctors, counsellors or professionally trained sex therapists. We're just two women who've got a little thing called life experience and who send a lot of texts to each other about online dating. (laughs) Violated and Ashamed writes... I recently listened to your episode with Carly Findlay where she talks of her experience being catfished as a teenager. I had no idea an actual term existed for this as I honestly thought I was alone in my experience. I was catfished at the age of 16 and the ordeal lasted for about a year. I don't want to get into the details except that it left me feeling heartbroken, embarrassed but above all incredibly violated. I began questioning other areas of my life and wondering what else could be a lie. It was a very Truman Show kind of thing. This was over a decade ago, and while I thought I had moved past it, I now realise, based on the very strong reaction I had when listening to your podcast, that I had really only suppressed it, and some of these feelings started creeping back. I think the biggest hurdle that stands in the way of truly moving past it was that I never found out this person's true identity, and probably never will. So it feels as though they still hold power over me. How do I begin to work through something like this? I know I need to seek professional therapy, but I still have so much shame surrounding this and based on not so great experiences I've had with therapists in the past, which are unrelated to this, I worry they might not get it and the whole process could do more harm than good. Any support and advice you have would be greatly appreciated. Sincerely, Violated and Ashamed. I'm so sorry that happened to you. That's terrible. Um, when Clementine was reading the letter, I just felt like I had the most terrible look on my face. Like it's so that's so shocking, and I'm so sorry that happened. Two things were um, leapt into my head as I was listening to that. Um, I don't know if you're the kind of person or if this little sister is the kind of person who benefits like I do from finding the right reading material when things happen in life. Um, I, As a reader, I find that's a really necessary thing to um, bond to when when I'm going through something, I want to have the right book. I I look for um, examples in texts that are going to help me understand what's happened. And uh, But I've gotten in trouble about this before because once when my friend was going through a divorce, I suggested that we send her a copy, copy of um, Rachel Cusk's book, Aftermath, about her divorce. And all my girlfriends said, no, it's too soon. So obviously not everyone appreciates this. But I, I remember listening to a great podcast about Casey Donovan being catfished. Do you know that story, mm. Clem? And um, she spoke, maybe she's even written a book about it, but she spoke so eloquently and heartbreakingly about her experience. And I just wonder if part of the sense of shame is a sense of feeling like you're the only person that this has happened to. And um, even if rationally you know that's not true, being able to hear and connect with somebody else's experience who has gone through this might help to normalise it and to make it feel that you're not alone and that it's a thing that does happen in the world, unfortunately. And there's another really great memoir by this Australian writer called Stephanie Wood called Fake. She had a long relationship with a man who didn't exist to the extent that he he depicted himself. Yeah, well, I mean, he was just a straight-up con artist, wasn't he? Yeah. 
Uh, the first thing I want to say is I'm, again, echoing you, Alice, I'm so sorry that someone did this to you mm. and that this has been your experience. And I'm also very sorry that listening to that episode uh, unknowingly triggered this response in you and uh, that perhaps you, perhaps in listening to it and in rediscovering those feelings, you felt extremely alone. Um, so I just want to take that opportunity to say to all listeners that please, if if you do, you know, there, there is a kind of a blanket content note on all of these episodes because obviously some of the questions that we deal with are, you know, very personal in nature. If you do need to talk to someone, then you can always call 1-800-RESPECT um, or you can call Lifeline. They Both of those call lines have trained professionals who are able to help you in the moment as you're experiencing these feelings. But I also think that seeking therapy and counselling is an essential starting point because clearly this has had a deep and long-lasting effect on you. Having said that, I also appreciate that you've had a difficult experience with therapists in the past and it can be a case of, unfortunately, a case of trial and error to find the right therapist who will listen and understand what it is that you're saying even if they don't have direct experience of it themselves I do think that people would hear this story though and have empathy for you and what you've gone through and also I just want to reassure you that you are absolutely not the only person that has ever had this done to you you know clearly Carly spoke about her own experiences Alice has said Stephanie Wood's written a, an entire book about this, Casey Donovan. There's lots and lots of people who have had their vulnerabilities exploited by duplicitous, malicious, manipulative people on the internet. And it is no reflection on you or your worth that you were exposed to this or that you were chosen by them to be the target of it. Especially not at age 16. I think that's exactly. really important to underscore that when you're 16, you're still a child essentially. Nothing that happens to you in the, in this way is your fault or that something you've asked for or something that you did something wrong to make it happen. Mm. In terms of being able to move past this or being able to deal with the betrayal that you are still obviously wrestling with, I wonder if it would be helpful to not to compare that experience which is very specific and and clearly very maliciously uh, you know it was undertaken in a very malicious way but to also I guess kind of find some solidarity in the sense that for a lot of people who've you know embarked on relationships with people uh, whether or not they've met them in real life or not there can often be some sense of having been yeah Having, having shared some very deep parts of yourself with someone who ultimately didn't end up being worthy of them or, or ultimately didn't end up returning the favour of, of, you know, of that vulnerability and of that um, sense of inviting you into themselves. And I think that that can be difficult for everyone to, to deal with in the aftermath because the questions that you're left with are always, well, what was real and what wasn't? And that, that's whether or not you're being deliberately catfished or whether or not you've kind of opened your heart to someone who then just shuts the door on it. And it can also be a kind of a sense of like, what was it about me that allowed them to think they could do that or feel that they wanted to do that mm. to me? And the answer is nothing about you. It's about them. Exactly. 
Yeah, it's not. Although, I mean, it is difficult to. This is some. Of, this is part of the process of unpacking it in, you know, any iteration of this experience, is logically knowing that to be true, mm-hmm. but being able to apply it in practice. Because of course we're wounded. You know, when something like this happens to us, we're deeply wounded by it. And what's not, you know, I think Stephanie Wood has written about this. Stephanie Wood articulated this in her book and. Um, there was also a really great podcast on the Australian called Who the Hell is Hamish, which may be helpful for you to listen to as well. It's not specifically about a catfishing scenario, you know, in its strictest sense, but it is about a con artist who took in hundreds of people, you know. He's in jail now, so that might be some small small kind of thrill for you. It was for me when I was listening to it. Everyone seems to have asked themselves afterwards, how could I have how could I have been so stupid, you know? And I think that that's a common response from a lot of people who are manipulated in this way. And as Alice said, it's absolutely nothing to do with you being, you know, clever enough to spot these people. These people are very good at what they do. They're very good at manipulating people. They're very good at being chameleons and shifting in and out of focus. So it's, you cannot blame yourself for being swept up in it, especially not, as Alice said, at 16 years old when we are beginning to unfurl into the world and open our hearts up to people and we want to trust people. And I feel furious on your behalf that someone has taken advantage of that in you, that openness and that trusting nature and potentially will certainly, you know, uh, left you with a deep scar because of it. And you know what, if you can think about anything that's um, positive about this, to me the positive is that you're a person who can fall in love or trust people or take pleasure in relationship, being in relationship with someone and I think those are really important, beautiful human qualities and you possess them and you can use them again. Mm. Have you ever felt like you sort of left a relationship or came out of a situation where you feel a little bit blindsided by what's happened? Oh, of course, all the time. Yes, definitely. I think that's really common. And I think I know from, I haven't had this experience, but from friends who've been in abusive partnerships um, say like the really hard thing about it is that you feel that you've let yourself down or that you you can't trust your own instincts. Mm. So I can imagine that being part of an ongoing legacy of in, um, dealing with something like this that in, as you move through your life afterwards you think, well, I, I couldn't spot it then so what's to say that I will be able to spot it in the future? Mm. But I think you have to just go back to that, yeah, the beautiful trusting aspects of yourself and to keep... Um, keep trying in the world. Mm. I I don't know. Is it is it foolish? Do you think or naive to think that to to assume a world view where you believe you choose to believe that people are mostly good? I don't think it's foolish at all. I think that you know to be able to continue believing that people are mostly good despite being shown repeated evidence to the contrary is a sign of faith. Um. And if we let every terrible ex- – and I'm not addressing this next bit really to this little sister because obviously her experience is very specific and a great harm was done to her. But just generally speaking, if we let every hurt prevent us from, you know, sucking everything out of life that we can take from it, you know, in with respect, obviously, 
then we're the ones who end up just hurting ourselves because of that. Um, I, you know, I feel like what you articulate, Alice, about that sense of not being able to trust your own instincts is probably key here. And it's not so much about, I mean, to, the, to this person who's written in the question, obviously therapy is a good starting point. But it's not so much wrestling necessarily with the specifics of what happened at 16. It is it is trying to build up the resilience of that instinct again and to have to find that faith in instinct. Mm. And I suppose to come to terms with the fact that you are allowed to grieve for the person who you believed existed but who turned out to be a lie. It doesn't make the feelings that you felt for them any less real and it doesn't make the experience that you had of falling in love any less profound. It just happened to be with someone who didn't deserve any of that. Mm. It's a little bit like that on a very different scale. I don't mean to minimise. It's a little bit like that feeling of in terrible loss and grief that we get sometimes when we've had a dream, a, you know, a dream of falling in love with someone who's just exactly who we want, our dream person, and we wake up and re- we realise that they were just a figment of the dream world. And I always feel quite bereft after those moments. And it, it's sort of similar because for whatever you felt in the moment was exactly, it was truth. But I think the authenticity and the legitimacy of the feelings are what I would urge this little sister to keep holding on to. Like mm-hmm. the ability to have and the kind of experience of having had those feelings is so profound and worthwhile even if the legacy of them has been really damaging. I also feel that there's something about the shame here. The shame is what sort of leaps out to me in that question and that's what I would wish this person to be unburdened from you know, the sense of shame is coming from a sense like that you should have known or that you did something wrong or that if you'd been a different or better or smarter or something person, something X um, quantity or quality person, then it wouldn't have happened. But I don't know, like terrible things happen all the time to people who don't deserve it. And I think, you know, to be able to wrestle with that shame and put it behind you and to feel that you you were the the good actor in this mm. as in the good person not yeah, the good, yeah 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 the good person the good mm. um the well, good human one of the things that she says is that she never found out this person's true identity and probably never will so it feels as though they still hold power over me and that seems to me to be also where some of the key lies um the key to unpacking this lies is somehow coming to terms with the fact that you you won't know who this person is that their whatever fantasy they constructed is what you need to wrestle with and deal with because they could be anyone and I don't mean they literally could obviously be anyone but also it doesn't matter who they are what matters is that they constructed this lie that left you with this deep wound and you have to give yourself permission to grieve that. I really like this thing that Dan Savage says. The, he's a commentator. He 
talks about sex and relationships and he says that um, we often have a desire to seek closure but actually it's not something that anyone else can give us. Mm. We have to give it to ourselves. Mm. And so maybe that's resonant for this person too. Yeah, and and that might be a long struggle. I mean, there's there's people who I still, I mean, not again, not in this exact scenario, but there's people who I still wrestle with now thinking, what happened? What went wrong? What did I do wrong? I mean, mm. of course, I always fixated on, on what I did wrong. Um, what, you know, how could I have made things better? What, you know, and the fantasizing in your head about different scenarios and stuff. And the thing is, you have to question, you have to kind of understand at what point that becomes really detrimental to you and really harmful to your own well-being and your own soul. And it sounds like you're at that point, little sister. Um, and unpacking that is the first step. So practical advice is find yourself a good therapist, someone who understands, perhaps even broach the topic with them when you're sort of shopping around for a therapist um, and, you know, judge their reaction, I guess, uh, and trust your instincts on that. Give yourself permission and space to grieve and maybe do like something really kind of cheesy, which I love cheese. Um, you know, write a letter to this person who you thought they were. Write a letter and express your feelings to them and tell them how deeply they've hurt you. And you can also say, I wish you were real. You know, you're allowed to wish that, but accept that they weren't. And then, you know, stage a little ritual in the backyard, burn it. Send the ashes up into the sky. Go and throw it into the beach. Into the well, don't actually don't go and throw things into the water. Um, <laughs> but you know, I'm I really love engaging in rituals of goodbye and closure and so on and so forth. And and also, lastly and most importantly, understand that you are absolutely not an, not alone in this experience. And I'm just very sorry that you had to go through it. As am I. You'll be all right though. Capitalism sucks, writes. I always felt like I was smart, independent and just generally able to take care of myself. But now I'm 25 and totally financially dependent on my boyfriend. I'm a full-time post-grad student. I can't find a job thanks to the pandemic. And so far I haven't been able to get onto Centrelink. I love our apartment, but it's in his name. I love cooking food for us, but he pays for all of it. He makes me happy every day, but I feel inadequate and scared. I don't want to break up with him, but I'm worried that if I decide to leave, I won't be able to. We both deserve better. I know deep down I'm an amazing, intelligent, funny, sexy, bisexual woman, but I just feel like an accidental 50s throwback. I feel embarrassed around my friends, knowing how hard they work at their jobs. I feel like I don't deserve to be in the company of such awesome women when I've somehow become the dependent woman I never wanted to be. I want to be in control of my life. I'm scared it's too late for me to get my career to where I want it. How do I deal with these feelings? Have I missed the boat? I want to be all in with my love, but I'm terrified of getting trapped. Love from your little sister. Capitalism sucks. Alice Robinson. The first thing that I would say is that um, I completely understand where you're coming from, but you're only 25. So the thing that I would feel about your... You sound amazingly accomplished for 25, actually. You're doing postgrad or you've done it, postgrad qualification... You're very thoughtful and articulate. Um, 
And this sense of sort of like wanting it all and wanting to um, be successful and to, you know, stake your claim on the world is totally understandable. But I think you've got a lot of time. As someone who's approaching 40, I can see now that 25 is only sort of the start of the journey, really. Um, But I really relate to that sense of time running out and wanting to have it all established. But so I guess the first thing I would say is it's okay, it's going to be all right. And you've got a lot of time to sort it out. But I think your your fears around um, equity and power is really what you're talking about being an equal contributor and having equal power in the relationship and that being connected to financial uh contributions you know I I feel those things too I think a lot of women do um and I think they're valid Mm. what do you think Clem oh I agree with you 100% and I remember being 25 and feeling frantic about my life slipping me by my career goals I could see them on the horizon, but I felt like they every day I woke up and they seemed further and further away. Um, you know, my career didn't really start until after I'd turned 30. And in fact, actually, it's only really been in the last five years that anything of real significance has occurred. And I'm 39. Mm-hmm. So just as difficult as it can be to kind of give yourself a breath and a moment to uh recognize that you have a lot more time than you think you do as difficult as that is just let yourself try to have that breath because you're not going to wake up tomorrow even if you could get a job tomorrow you're not going to wake up tomorrow and your career is going to be boom exactly where you want it to be you know it it does take time i think one of the big problems actually is that we look at a lot of people around us who we do perceive as being successful and, uh, you know, career-minded and um, in our fields, people who we admire, etc. And we feel that great big chasm of space between the two of us and we think, oh, my God, well, how will I ever get to that position, you know, that they, and they're this old and or whatever it might be, you know, how will I be that person? What we don't ever see all of the years that they spent feeling exactly the way that you feel right now, the times when they looked at their lives and they felt like they weren't moving fast enough, they weren't achieving enough, that all of their goals were out there on the horizon and they felt like they were just slipping further and further out of reach. We never see the hard work that actually goes into getting to that point. That experience of it feeling difficult and insurmountable is part of the process. I think the other part of this question, which is almost more worrying to me because I have sort of no doubts in my mind that this woman's going to be okay career-wise. She seems pretty together, actually. It's just that we're in a global crisis and the job market's shifted and it's a difficult time. I'm more concerned about the feeling of inequity in the relationship, Mm. especially financially. And so what I'm kind of wondering is, and I've been in that scenario because I've had two children, so there were long times when um, I was on maternity leave, and I definitely, as a feminist, found that very challenging in the relationship um, because it was contravening the ideas I had about myself as an equal in the relationship, even though it was an agreed scenario that I would not contribute financially in that time because I was looking after kids, like Mm. many women. But it felt uncomfortable to me and disempowering. And so I wonder if there's not a case to be made for this little sister getting any job Mm. at this point. 
it's we're in a particular global moment, so maybe the, her chosen job and career is a little bit out of reach now, not forever, just for now. And I wonder if it would make her feel better, even if she did something quite different, and maybe something not as interesting, maybe something not as stimulating, and maybe something that won't even progress her chosen career, but might allow her to contribute financially and feel more of an equal. Like I think there's real value and legitimacy in feeling that you're not in an equal partnership in that way Mm. and feeling that if you need to leave or if you want to change your circumstance, you can't. So my kind of thinking is perhaps if I were her, I would be seeking any job for the moment and see it as a stopgap way of evening the power. Absolutely. And it's a terrible reflection on the profound impact that this pandemic is having on women in particular, that so many of them, even in situations where the relationships are very happy, so many women are now reliant on male partners to uh, support them financially. And that, you know, I think that it is correct to be wary of that as a trap because it is a trap. It's it is a, a trap. trap and I think it's also hard on – I would like to also say that it's hard on both of the pe- – like it polarises the experience of the two people in the relationship because one of them's then out in the world in public in the workforce and one of them's not. And so there's a kind of, a, yeah, real polarisation of their lives. One thing that jumped out to me in this question was uh, that this little sister pointed out that she is a happy, intelligent, amazing, funny, sexy, bisexual woman – and I wonder, obviously I don't have the means to ask to answer this right now because we can't get the answer to it, but I wonder whether or not it would feel different if you were in a relationship with a woman who were financially providing for you. And my suspicion is, yes, it would. And I would probably feel differently about it too, um, which is not to say that I would feel great about it, because I think that having your own money and having control of your own finances is so paramount to sense of independence and um and I and I appreciate your anxiety about that in this relationship but it feels like one of the things that you're struggling with is that despite all of your best intentions and despite your political will you have fallen as you say into the trap of being a 1950s housewife I guess maybe one of the practical things that you can do in addition to as Alice said maybe looking for just a job any job is to sit down and express these feelings clearly to your boyfriend and say that, you know, while you're, you've, you like cooking and you appreciate the fact that he buys the food and that he's the one that's going out to work. I mean, all this stuff that has always been said to justify the fact, I mean, men go to work for eight hours a day, big fucking deal. Um, that actually it's not your job to be his stay at home housewife. And, and I'm not suggesting do that in an aggressive way. Uh, although that's fine if you want to as well. Um, to say that part of a partnership is that there will be ebbs and flows and waxing and waning of each other's privilege and financial access and so on. And that when that happens, it doesn't mean that the person who's not bringing anything economic in terms of like cold hard cash to the table suddenly just gets to do all of the other work. That you still need to have a fundamentally equitable relationship between the two of you where sometimes he cooks you dinner, sometimes... He takes care of you and to recognise that what you bring to the relationship, both of you, cannot be strictly defined in terms of economic benefit or not. 
Because if you want to put it like that, what you bring in terms of economic benefit to the relationship probably far outstrips his salary because the work and domestic labour that women do is a multi-billion dollar fucking industry worldwide and it's unpaid. Mm, I think that's really good advice. I also kind of wonder if maybe sitting down and having a conversation, isn't it so funny how in these kinds of scenarios or all of our lives so much can be just solved by having a conversation or like that can make a huge inroad into solving the problem? So simple. But I think like having a conversation and maybe explaining to your boyfriend or, or if it's his across these issues, like to engaging in dialogue with him about the fact that part of what's really hard about your situation is that you're not just in an in, uh, in a moment in a life or in a scenario you're actually in all of those things that are also um, indicative of a larger historical narrative about women's lives and that, that's what's mm. hard for women I think who care about these things and who can appraise them when you're in that situation it's not just you making the dinner and him going off to work it's the two of you kind of standing in for a massive history you know, multi-century historical narrative about women's lives and their disempowerment mm. in those lives. And, and and that's a really good way to lead into the last and, as I argue, equally important part of this question, which is the way that she feels around her friends. She describes them as being awesome women who she doesn't feel like she deserves to be in the company of because they work hard at their jobs. And I just want to dispel for you, little sister, that you – to spell for you the idea that you don't deserve to spend time with amazing women because you currently don't have a job that brings you, you know, financial benefit. Firstly, you're studying full-time, you say, but your worth and value to women is not dependent on whether or not you have a job with a salary attached to it. That's not – it's almost certainly not why they're friends with you. And if they are amazing, as you say, then – they probably see the same thing in you and they value your company. I doubt they're judging you for your situation and they probably would be very open to you talking to them about it if you feel like you can openly and honestly have that conversation. Yes, and if you can't, then maybe you can look for some other women friends. Like I think um, there's something about women, you know, really good women friends who are just allies to one another, mm. regardless of their circumstance. Mm. And it shouldn't be com- competitive. Women are always putting competition with each other culturally. But, you know, when you find really good friends, and if these women are your good friends, then I would be surprised if they have even necessarily registered that this is mm. going on for you. It might be news to them that you feel this way. Mm. I'll also say that if it makes you feel any better... All through my 20s, my girlfriend supported me financially because I had no money. I was, you know, temping. I was waitressing. I was trying to write. And I was – I couldn't go out to dinner with them and pay my share. So I had girlfriends who covered the bill for me. And it made me feel terrible. I I appreciate exactly what you're saying. It made me feel incredibly disempowered. It made me feel like a terrible friend. And – I, I felt like I, I can never, ever repay you all for this. And financially I can't, but that's not what friendship is about. But is she saying that she's worried on a practical sense or that she's worried that they'll judge her politics? Oh, I'm, I was just sharing my particular mm. experience. I think that it seems to me my interpretation is that she's, she's judging her politics mm. and she's projecting that outwardly onto, onto the people who she values and cares about. 
Uh, yeah, but we all know that part of being a feminist is um, respecting, you know, other people's lives, other women's lives and choices. So I really hope that um, when you write again, you're saying that your friends have, were lovely about it mm. and supportive of you. And I really hope as well that your partner is too and appreciative of what you're doing, mm. as I'm sure you are of him. Yeah, but, you know, go in with your eyes open. And as lovely and amazing as he no doubt is, listen to the voice that tells you of being wary of the trap. And the moment that you see the trap kind of coming down around you, you need to have another conversation with him about what that means and, and how you need to change that dynamic. Because there, there is a point at which maybe it will be too far to come back from that in terms of the equity. But good luck and please do write and update us on the outcome of your conversation and how you're feeling now. Worried Mother asks, My son has always been a Lego and Star Wars fan. We've shared many a happy hour playing and discussing both. Recently, though... He's been watching videos on YouTube that show a group piling on Rey, who was a lead female character in the Star Wars franchise, piling on her, her abilities and her worth. At first I enjoyed our debates, but to prove his point, he has travelled down a deep line and found some incredibly misogynistic online material. He repeats this to me, which I again critically deconstruct, but I feel I need to ask for your suggestions on how I keep making the arguments to him. This is a really hard question. I feel like it goes right to my core as a woman and a mother. I, I, I really, I'm fearful of this scenario happening in my household because I fear that I won't know what to do, just mm. like the position that this little sister is in. I, I, I wonder if, and I feel like I've talked a bit about literature already, but. That's a natural kind of inclination for me. I wonder if 13 is too old to um, start to provide, and I'm sure you've already done this if, if you're you know, a fan of Clementines and a feminist and interested in these things, but like, I wonder if there's something about um, asking a young boy to enter into women's subjectivities via fiction for example but I'm thinking about literature that's told from um, strong female characters points of view or even mm. not strong any any woman's point of view that might invite a different way of reckoning with women and women's experiences but I don't know my kids are younger so I'm not entirely sure what 13 is like whether he'll be amenable to being pointed in the direction of particular cultural products or not I also kind of wonder if it's too young to say you know what um, is not helpful about these kinds of worldviews or in what context it's not helpful? And that is, like, if you ever want to date women, like, or kiss women or be, have, be friends with them or anything, like, having those views is going to make that really hard for you. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's worth a shot. I'm with you. I read this question and felt instant anxiety because... Yeah. My son will turn four in a couple of weeks. Uh, he's really into Lego. I was just saying to his dad the other night that I, I can't wait for him to get into Star Wars because we all watched Star Wars when we were kids, even though there's only one fucking woman in the whole first three movies of any note. And, yes, she's the best woman, but you're only allowed to have one woman and she's got to be the best. Um, 
I it's funny because you know I use the analogy in boys will be in my second book boys will be in my second book boys will be boys um I, I write about girls on film and the the narratives and the adventure tales that we're all sort of like you know can raised with or that people of our generation were raised with and boys are given so many stories told about themselves you know and Star Wars is obviously one of the biggest ones and and girls learn to watch along and and to find that subjectivity that you talk about to find that subjectivity in men's experiences Mm. and I was actually saying to you Alice before I uh before we did the podcast today I was talking to you about Taylor Swift's new album Folklore which is amazing you should listen to it cry get drunk cry it's incredible um and I I say that actually as someone who was not a lifelong Taylor fan and I'm not pointing that that out as some kind of internalized misogyny like oh I've never really liked Taylor but it's I appreciate seeing this total evolution into herself as a young woman you know that she's come from this place where she felt as we all do that she needed to perform some version of womanhood to other people and now clearly is in fucking complete control of her artistic and creative output and who she is as a woman and I was chatting with some guy on uh, you know a dating app earlier and I said he says that he likes music and I said you know what do you think of Taylor Swift and he said, oh, well, I'm not really a huge fan, but I haven't listened to a new album yet. And it occurred to me then that, of course, a lot of men will be, and I'm generalising, but a lot of men will say, oh, well, I'm not going to listen to it because, <laughs> as if I would listen to Taylor Swift. Because the idea that she could somehow have written an album that would have any resonance for them at all in terms of it being about the human experience generally, but also about the specific experience of being a woman why would they bother listening to that? Why would they seek out stories about women? Why would they seek out women's experiences? Intervening at this early stage when they are 13 years old, I think is imperative. I don't understand something about that. I've long not understood why. Like I feel like if I was a heterosexual man and I wanted to date women, the first thing I would do is seek out every narrative told from a woman's point of view and like try and work out, you know, isn't this there this kind of mystique around like what are women, I don't know what they want. Like, yeah, but you're, saying find that, out. you're saying that as Alice Robinson, you know, PhD holder and, so and novelist who's, who's interested in the human experience. You're not saying that as, you're like, how many men have we seen with these profiles up that say, oh, you want to know something, just ask. Or, you know, like one word answers or clearly like no sense of curiosity about the world around them and least of all curious about the women who occupy it. But if it led them to ha- to get sex, for example, or to be able to like, what I don't understand even if, like on that base level. Like, well, the, no, but the problem is a, a lot of women will have sex with men who don't deserve to be in the vicinity of women <laughs> because we've been taught to hate ourselves. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I really like this thing, this um, uh, novelist Meg Woolitzer who's written lots of books. Oh, I love and, Meg Woolitzer. Yeah, she's wonderful and she's a New York Times bestseller and she has this great article, I think it was published in The Guardian, um, where she talks recounts a story about being at a party and a man kind of begrudgingly regu- saying to her, like, and what do you write? And she said, oh, I write about families or, you know, re- um, relationships or something. And, she tried, you know, she t- outlined her, her books, which are many and um, very well sold. 
And he said, oh, that sounds like something my wife would like. You know, as though, like, stories about people are only for women. Well, Rachel Cusk, who you mentioned earlier, Rachel Cusk years ago wrote this fantastic piece, I mean, what a surprise, um, (laughs) about that exact thing where she said, you know, why is it that stories told about war, for example, that are dominated by men uh, are treated as being like very reflective of the deep human experience and, uh, and you know, what it means to be alive. And yet a story written about working in a shop, a girl working in a shop, couldn't possibly be reflective of some kind of universal experience or, or of any interest to anyone. Mm, sounds except boring. For, except for, you know, my wife. <laughs> That's right. Anyway... I realised that both of us can, all we can do is express our deep abiding fear and anxiety about this very issue and confronting it with our own boys. You know, between us, we have three boys. Um, And we can provide some suggestions, but ultimately we're still just women operating in in an environment where, let's be honest, we've always struggled to get men (laughs) to care about women's experiences. So I am going to use this opportunity to call my brother and have him on the hotline because my brother Tobias is, you know, a lifelong fan of Lego, Star Wars, all of these things. He also is a guy, so he's probably got a bit better insight. So let's give him a call now, shall we? Hello. Hi, Toby. Ah, uh, hello. How are you going? Toby. Hello. Toby, thank yes. you for being on the Big Sister Hotline as an honorary big brother, my big brother. I... Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. <laughs> well, we thought that you would have some good insight into this because not only are you a guy, but you also have, you know, spent quite a lot of time growing up in the Lego and Star Wars universes and, you know, you uh, you know how men speak to about women when there aren't women there. So yeah, what did you what, what yeah. did you think when I shared that question with you earlier today? Firstly, I'd like to say thanks for the question and also just put in a bit of a disclaimer because a question like this is a bit challenging to talk to sometimes without knowing uh, the person or the dynamic of their relationship. And the topic itself can be quite um, challenging and a bit of a minefield as well. And I'm certainly no expert. It sounds like the sun is sort of at an age where they're developing and they're moving, you know, through that adolescent transition. And so their ideas are changing and they may be in a position where they're looking at challenging their parents. Um, And also there's that sort of tribal group thing. So, depending on, you know, the context of uh, how they're socialising sort of at school or with their peers, some of those dynamics may be emerging. And some of what's happening here might be um, sort of a culmination of that. I think it's fundamental to to kind of understand why this uh, is happening and why they're sort of locking horns or coming to an impasse on this topic. So. I mean, it sounds like she describes their relationship as being mm. pretty positive. You know, she says that we've shared many a happy hour playing and discussing both. But recently, and as you point out, you know, he's 13. He's he's at that point where, you know, like all adolescents are trying to define themselves against their parents. And particularly mm. 
seems like he's trying to define himself as a man against his mother. Um, I, I, I want to know from you how difficult is it to resist? Well, firstly, how present is the expectation amongst young adolescent boys that you adhere to the pack? And, and how difficult is it to resist that? I can only really speak from my own experience. There's a, a massive driver to uh, sort of find, I guess, that acceptance or, or being on the same wavelength as, you know, your peer group. Um, thinking about when I was going through high school. So, uh, so I would say that's probably a, a quite a strong driver in this case. An excellent podcast to listen to on this topic is Rabbit Hole, which is the New York Times podcast about the radicalization of young men on the internet, basically, um, via, you know, YouTube videos and men's rights groups. And there seems to be, as women become more visibly empowered and feminism kind of takes hold again, this really toxic backlash amongst men, but particularly amongst adolescent men, this sense of somehow being aggrieved or set upon or, you know, them needing to stake, you know, fight for their stake in the land um, or fight for their stake in the space. And I wonder if, I'm not certainly not suggesting that when we were young that there was no such thing as misogyny because we know that that's not true. But I wonder if there's more of a kind of visceral expression of it amongst young men now, partly because they can connect with so many more thousands of other young men and express these grievances with each other, but also because it's, it's just become this thing to sort of for young white men in particular to feel like, you know, that they're being, they're being put down and so they need to re- retaliate in some way. I think there's, there's no question and no doubt that the world is changing and is a is a much different place to when we were growing up. Like um, the the access to sort of ideas and and alternative points of view, you know, is is like so much more prevalent now with sort of the internet and you know things like YouTube and like Reddit and and all the other different ways that you can access information. And I think so. Being a parent now is like in some ways massively harder than, than it ever was when we were kids and, and trying to sort of mentor your kids and, and help them navigate, you know, this, this period of their lives is probably, um, you know, really, really difficult. Alice suggested before that one way to kind of circumnavigate mm. this behaviour is to just basically remind the 13 year old that if he ever wants to be friends with women or date women or you know spend any significant time with women that cultivating mm. these thoughts in himself now is the worst way to go about doing that what do you think about that i think that's a good idea and you know thinking about where the where the son is at and possibly where the parent is at as well in are these is the expression of these ideas only happening in this one sort of microcosm or is this a more general um, expression or viewpoint from the kid? Because, um, you know, one thing, like it's okay to not like a character if that's sort of a genuine combination of I dislike this character for X, Y, and Z. So is this a misogyny problem or is this a Ray problem, you know, in this particular case? 
let's be honest, it's probably a combination of both because people can always mm. find an excuse to... I mean, one of the things that I always laughed about in people's criticism, or men's criticism mm. of Ray, was this, oh, yeah. well, she's just... She's a ridiculous, over-the-top character. You know, they've given her all of these skills that she would never have. Yeah. And I think, what do you think science fiction is? You know, how many men have been given incredible skills in terms of saving the fucking universe. Yeah, And that's never course. been a problem. And no, and I don't want to sort you of know, get sidelined by that. motherfucker, John McClane. <laughs> yeah, the, the character who will never die. So, yeah. So I would say, like, in terms of addressing that, though, it, it, like, she might be able to get some traction by looking at, you know, are these, like what behaviors is it that this character has that you don't like, or is it, you know, their person, um, uh, their their traits as a character, or is it behaviors that they're looking at? And mm-hmm. trying to reframe the discussion mm-hmm. in a way where you can sort of like almost take Ray out of the discussion mm-hmm. and sort of address, you know, in a um, uh, in like a rational sort of you know, reasoned way, well, if you don't like these behaviours, then surely you don't like them in this other character, and if that's not the case, then mm. then you sort of blow the whole argument out of the water. But I think, like, the more you focus in on the example, probably the harder it gets for either party to um, to sort of take a step back and, and reassess, you know, how invested they are. I mean, particularly if it's a, a young bull, old bull sort of thing you know, that's going on under the cover of something else. So. That's that's great, Tobes. Thanks so much for sharing your particular insight on that. Um, I really appreciate it. Alice, do you have anything that you would like to say? I'm really interested in what Toby's saying about... Um, I should say that Toby's real name is Tobias and that is his preferred name, but I've just called him Toby my whole life, so... <laughs> Sorry, Tobias. Um, I feel oh, like you. you started out by saying interesting thing that interesting to me things about their relationship and the dynamic in their relationship, which I hadn't really thought about but makes sense to me as a parent and someone who's been a child of a parent. And I mm-hmm. feel like maybe one way of thinking about this which might be valuable for this person is to think about how we urge people, and I guess I'm thinking about my women friends, when you know that somebody's in an abusive relationship and mm-hmm. the sort of the standard advice as a friend seems to be that you whatever you do, you don't want to close the door on mm. them mm. so that when they feel that they want to get out of it, they can't come to you. And I wonder if that's a good framework for this too. So whatever this mother's doing with this son, she wants to keep engaging with him in a way that keeps the, the flow of the communication mm. open, which she would because she sounds like a really great mum. Um, but in that sense, because he's only 13, so... Maybe kind of bring it down a notch and thinking, you know, maybe this is a normal part of being a 13-year-old boy and the extent to which he can grow up to be a wonderful man um, in the way that we might understand wonderful is the extent to which... The correct way. That's right, the right way. Is the extent to which they can maintain a a really great dialogue about this stuff Mm. and by the time he's 20, these ideas will be put to bed because his mother will have kept this kind of almost neutral stance where she keeps asserting Mm. this kind of, like, I don't agree with that and here are my reasons, but not inflamed, not, Mm. you know, divisive, so that 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 conversation can keep going through his adolescence into his adulthood. I think that's excellent advice. I also want to say as well that, I mean, this isn't the first question that I've 
received from a woman who is concerned about some of the ideas that her 13, 14-year-old son is bringing home. Um, and I want to acknowledge for the mothers out there who are in that situation listening, and and we will probably be those mothers ourselves one day, is that it's a real heartbreak to have spent all of these years with these beautiful, cuddly, soft boys, you know, cultivating the kind of maternal-child relationship that is so meaningful to you and to them, it seems, at one point and then hopefully later on at another point. And then to have to go through this period of time with them through adolescence, which is probably normal and that, yes, is them defining themselves against you, but that is really hurtful and cruel and fundamentally disempowering to you and your humanity because the ideas that they're bringing into your domestic space are ones that completely undermine you as a woman. And I think the same must be true if you had a daughter who started to exhibit certain behaviours in relationship with men as mm. well. And you think, did you not listen that whole childhood where I was trying to teach you whatever I thought was important about being a woman? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But maybe that's just what people go through when they're teenagers and the extent to, yeah, the, the way that we navigate that with them is about our presence in their lives. Mm. Yeah, I think, sorry, Alice, but I mean, that sounds really sagely what you said and I think there is a there's a definite challenge between any parents I know our parents in some ways um you know in some circumstances had more of a do as I say not as I do kind of attitude and I think there's a fine line between kind of preaching to your kids versus trying to mentor your kids and one of the ways that they might sort of both turn this into a positive experience is by, I guess, going on a shared journey and um, the, the author or the person mentioned sort of YouTube. So rather than having that as a, a split exercise, you know, maybe take that as a, let's go watch some movies, some YouTube videos together and look at a, a spectrum of different things. And then, you know, either sort of make a game or, or have an objective sort of discussion based on, on that. And then they might find, you know, that might be a good way to kind of wean, um, you know, the kids through those through those thoughts. Because I think, like you said, it's important not to close the door and, and not to um, not to say this is bad and these are bad and this is, you know, um, I don't want to sort of draw a parallel, but like when you teach kids that sex is bad, maybe they try, you know, they want it or cigarettes are bad, so they want it. Um so trying to sort of, um, you know, not attach them to those ideas, but sort of navigate them through them, kind of like you're saying. And then, um, you know, then hopefully once they get to the other side, they'll think, wow, um, these things, you know, that I was thinking, they really are stupid and, or, you know, incorrect. Like I remember as a 13-year-old, there were lots of ideas that I had that I thought at the time well, this is the way of the world. And looking back on it, I think, wow, what was I thinking? So, yeah, I mean, I um, never thought anything bad when I was 13. Everything <laughs> I thought was was just top-notch. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Well, thank so, you so much, Tobias. Um, that was very helpful. It was really nice to have you on the phone. Yeah, on thank the Big you for Sister inviting Hall. me. So, uh, mm-hmm. I'll talk to you soon. Lovely. All right. Thank you both. Bye, Tobias. Have a good night. Thank Bye. You. I think that was good advice. It's hard 
in the moment to kind of, as I said, like you feel like you're being betrayed by this person that you you still have to go on living with. It's interesting what you mentioned abusive relationships before, and I'm not suggesting that these dynamics are abusive, but you can't just leave them. You know, you you have to sort of stay in situations that can be really upsetting and you know I don't know that that's necessarily work that men on the whole are called on to be on the front lines of. Yeah I think that could be true. I also feel more and more about parenting and this is just my view that that talking actually is I mean maybe it's different at 13 but but across a lifetime even um, that you know the children listen to very little of what their parents mm. say, yeah. but they are absorbing all the time a kind of, they're inferring ha- about how to live um, by their proximity, by virtue of their proximity mm. to their parents. And so I think, you know, a woman, a mother who's concerned about these things enough to write to you is probably leading by example and she should yeah. trust herself in that. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's a really good note to end on. Trust your instincts and just stay there and, and maintain the lines of communication. Keep them open and he'll come back to you. You've been listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all the back episodes. If you do like the show, then please consider rating and reviewing it because it's really nice to have feedback. And it also helps to throw the podcast in the path of other suitors, as Mrs. Bennett would say. If you enjoy the hotline as well, you can support the ongoing making of it at my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford, where pledges of more than $10 per month receive access to a bonus monthly episode of the hotline available only for download to subscribers. If you have a question you'd like answered, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got your back. My guest this week has been the fabulous Alice Robinson, whose book The Glad Shout has just been released in paperback format. I recommend you all go out and get it. As I said, look out for her forthcoming novel, which uh, I'm probably hyping it up a little bit too much just yet because <laughs> you're still in the very early stages of writing it. But by all accounts, it uh, sounds amazing. Um, and I can't wait to read it. Thanks, Clem. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you back. Thanks also to my brother Tobias, who joined us for the last question, to give us a guy's insight. Uh, Perhaps I'll make that a more regular feature of particular questions. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead. The Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines open. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.